Well, this morning we are in the book of Luke, Luke chapter 20, verses 19 through 40. You find our passage on page 879 in the Pew Bible, right in the bottom right-hand corner there. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. I'll bring the text up on the screen. Hear the word of the Lord. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on Jesus at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. And so they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly. And show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius, whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able to, in the presence of the people, to catch him in what he said, But marveling at his answer, they became silent. There came to him some Sadducees, uh, those who deny that there is a resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers... And the first one took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as a wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to the age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living. For all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. So the old adage is that you never talk about politics or religion in polite company. And why is that? Well, for one reason, we seem to have lost the ability to have any kind of reasonable disagreement without it turning into World War III. Uh, And if you do it at the dinner table, you now have supplied people with, you know, relatively harmless projectiles that may get thrown at you at at any given moment, and it may not end well, at least not without a trip to the dry cleaners. And, And, well, nobody told the Sanhedrin... About, uh, about how to have polite discussion because they are coming to Jesus and emptying both barrels of questions about politics and religion right at him. They've determined that they cannot uh, just take Jesus out physically yet because the people are behind him. And so they're seeking to undermine him and cause division, to cause him to lose support. 
And what better way than to ask him questions about touchy subjects like taxes and the resurrection? We'll get to each one in turn this morning. And first, we turn to the question about politics in verses 19 to 26. And we consider the, the clever trap that the, uh, that the, uh, the scribes and the Pharisees uh, lay in verses 19 to 22. Now, Luke calls them spies, uh, that they were, uh, they were sent in to trap Jesus. Specifically, they wanted to get him uh, in trouble in a way that they could turn him over to the Roman government. This shouldn't surprise us. There's, there's never been a, and nor will there be, a shortage of people who would like to use the sword of the government uh, against the church, against the people of God. Uh, but we need to note that these spies um, don't begin with a question. They begin with the flattery, because that's how it begins normally. In order to butter Jesus up, they say three things about him that they don't believe, uh, that Jesus speaks and teaches rightly, that he shows no partiality, and he truly teaches the way of God. The irony, though, is that he actually does these things. He is these things to the fullest degree. now, now we're, we are reminded or even instructed here at this point even to be on our guard against such flattery. And the best defense against uh, flattery, insincere flattery, is not to, you know, stiff arm anyone who tries to pay you a compliment. The meal was delicious. No, it wasn't. You know, just like to, I won't receive any compliment. Some people do that and it's weird. Uh, but, uh, but you but rather to have a healthy dose of humility. If we regularly humble ourselves before God, particularly in confession of our sin against the Lord and the reception of, of mercy for those sins from Him, then we will have a strong defense against insincere flattery, the poison sweetness of it, uh, because we know who we are. And, and we can still receive that and give thanks to God for it without uh, puffing up our pride. But they finally put the question to Jesus, according to the law of Moses, should faithful Jewish uh, Israelites pay the tribute tax to the filthy Roman oppressors? What say you, Jesus? Now, the tribute tax was a specific one that they're referring to here. It was a personal tax that you had to pay in respect to the emperor of Rome. I mean, imagine if you had to pay a personal tax just for the benefit of the president, right? Uh, you know, if you voted for him, you might be a little more on board, right? But if you didn't, you'd be, you know, it's like, it's already bad enough I pay taxes. Now I got to pay something that goes directly essentially to this guy and his, uh, and his works and what he's doing. And um, so it's not surprising that Jews really hated and resented this tax. Now, to be fair, I don't think anyone truly enjoys paying taxes, no matter what they are. But, it, but if Jesus says yes here, then that uh, then he'll be perceived as being in favor of Rome and he'll get discredited in the eyes of the people. But if he says no, well, then they could report him as a rabble rouser to the Romans and who would love to arrest him. Uh, as, as Christians, we may find ourselves in positions like this where we have to, uh, we're, we're put to a hard, uh, put, put, put a hard question to us, uh, where we're stuck between two bad options. And, this, and, and if we find ourselves in that kind of position, that's where we need to pray for wisdom. 
that we need to do, as Peter says, and be prepared to give an answer for the hope that is in us when people press us about it, but also to trust the Spirit, that the Holy Spirit will give us the words that we need to speak in that particular moment. And we're encouraged to do so in in this fact, or in this in this by uh, this revealing uh, answer that is given uh, by Jesus to uh, to them in verses twenty three to twenty six. So a trap, uh, you know, the trap may have been clever, but as we see, Jesus saw right through it. He he saw what they were up to. He knew what was going on. And in his answer, he he not only evaded, uh, what, but he clarifies, the in, in doing so, he clarifies the relationship between the church and state and even uh, an important principle of religion. So uh, and now we, when we think about coins, okay, we tend to think of uh, coinage in a very different way than they would have in the ancient world. We have very uniform currency here for very uh, particular reasons. We have a few mints that that pump out American currency, and that's the only kind of r- currency that's allowed to be spent. And 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 um, you know, and I put a note here: don't 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 talk to me about Bitcoin. So uh, that's not really a thing. All right. And uh, in now in the ancient world, um, it was it wasn't the case. Uh, in Jewish Palestine, uh, you would find Jewish coins. Greek coins, Tyrian coins, Roman coins, all in circulation at the same time, just depending on what transaction you were making and depending on what currency you had. And if, if you think our own currency things are annoying, try that one. You have four different types of currencies, and you're like, which one do I need for this? And, and so in Rome, the emperor controlled the imperial mint directly. And, and the denarius that Jesus asked them to produce was a Roman coin with the image of Caesar Tiberius on it, pictured with a laurel wreath on his head, let's say, which was a picture of the, it would say, uh, of the divinity of the emperor. No wonder Jews hated that coin. They didn't want to use that kind of coin. Now, whatever their feelings were about that coin, uh, the tribute tax required the use of it to pay it. So if you're a Jew, no matter if you hated it, you still had to go get that Roman coin and go pay it. And so Jesus' response here is profound. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. Render unto Caesar the coins that belong to him, and render unto God the things that belong to God. He finds a way to thread the needle, as only Jesus can do. But we should note that Jesus is not equ- here equating the authority of God with Caesar, uh, but rather, um, rather Caesar has, a, has, a, has a, his own role to play in the sovereign plan of God. Uh, but uh, it is true, though, that there is this relationship between the church and state, and that our life as Christians is lived as citizens of the, uh, of, uh, as citizens of the kingdom of earth and the kingdom of heaven. That we live as Christians today, as, as American citizens, citizens of the American government, and citizens of the kingdom of God. And uh, he is, so Caesar is lesser than God, of course. He is an authority. His authority is derivative from the authority that God gives to him, and he has his role to play. Our book of church order, even in the Presbyterian church, uh, says that the authority of the church and the authority of the state are as planets running on concentric orbits. They sometimes overlap. They exist in the same galaxy, but they're not on the same. They're not on the exact same plane. And so, but we have to be careful not to get distracted by the cleverness of Jesus' answer, um, 
and we miss the substance of it and the way that Jesus actually uh, he presents to us a rather surprising uh, statement when we think about it. Because at the end of the day, Jesus gives us a simple, reasonable, and impossible demand. Jesus kind of slips his answer right into there. And, and in there, he makes this demand. What are the things that we are to render unto God? What does God do? What do we owe God? Well, you know, certainly it would be our obedience and our worship. As Christ uh, says elsewhere, it would be to love God with all our being, with all our hearts, mind, and strength, right? Our soul. And to love our neighbors ourselves. You know, it's, you know, Jesus, you know, hit the Pharisees with this coin bit, you know, and pull out the coin and gotcha, showing you, shown you that I can answer these questions and really thread the needle on it. But he really hits us here on this one. Because all that's demanded of us as Christians is that we give God all that we are and all that we have. Simple. But who can do that? Who has done this? And Jesus' answer to a political question, he reveals, even for God's own people, this side of the cross, how much we are left wanting in our obedience, in our love for God. How much we need a Savior who can address the great gap in our obedience, in our worship, even our, even our very life as we live before the face of God. And, and I want to highlight, even, even as we ourselves may come with lots of flattery for Jesus to try to make up for our lack of obedience to him. But no amount of flattery, no amount of craftiness is going to fool Jesus if we come, if we come and we have no love for him. And so we have this answer to this question of politics that he gives us, that drives us uh, to show us our need for a Savior, to show us our, uh, our wanting and obedience, to show us the, the almost impossible demand that God gives upon us uh, that is only possible through faith in Christ. And then we move from a question of politics to a question of religion, in verses 27 through 40. So the Pharisees are on the ropes, and so they tag in their wrestling partner, the Sadducees, uh, who come in and address a question of the resurrection in this borderline, silly, hypothetical scenario uh, that ends up uh, revealing both the value and the limits of marriage in this life, uh, as well as reinforcing the reality of the resurrection. And so we, we see this value and limits of marriage in this story that they concoct in verses 27 through 36. Now, the Sadducees, this is the only mention of the group of the Sadducees by Luke in his gospel. They came uh, largely from uh, wealthy elites, uh, and as such, they thought things were pretty good as, you know, you know, if you're super wealthy and successful, you're like, things are going pretty good. I kind of like how things are, kind of like working with the Romans. We're we're good. We don't really want to, don't really want to mix things up here. And uh, they were conservatives of a sort. Uh, they, they broke with the Pharisees in that they rejected the oral tradition of the rabbis that, that, that brought authoritative teaching of the Old Testament and things called the, uh, the Talmud and the Mishnah. Uh, but, uh, and it's also, it's also understood that the Sadducees only affirmed uh, the first five books of what we would call our Old Testament uh, as their true scriptures, although there is a, at least one uh, uh, respectable scholar who disputes that. But at any rate, the Sadducees were very worldly. They're very concerned with the material world. They denied the afterlife and, and most certainly the resurrection. 
But to understand their question, you also have to understand this thing called leveret marriage, because that's not something we really have today. But basically, it's, uh, leveret marriage was simply if a woman became a widow in the, in the ancient world, in, in Israelite Jewish, uh, uh, in, in the people there, um, it was the responsibility of the brother-in-law to marry her and to have children by her in memory of his brother. So that way his line would not be cut off. And it was also a way to provide for uh, widows and to protect them economically and socially. And so they tell a tale of a woman who married a man, uh, and they had no kids, and the man died. And so his line was going to be cut off, and so his, his brother dutifully marries his, his sister-in-law, uh, but also uh, he dies before they have any children, and this repeats through a total of seven husbands until the woman herself dies. Now, Deroff Davis in his commentary wrote that at this point, this is what makes the story so unbelievable, because he, as he says, no woman would have survived seven husbands. Uh, she would have given up the ghost long before that. Uh, maybe she would have survived three husbands, or by reason of strength, four. But seven? No, no, no. She'd have perished long before that. So you can imagine the, the but the, you can imagine the, the scorn coming off of the Sadducees' question uh, as it passed through their the, the, their wry smile as they as they you know. So if they're you know so in the resurrection, Jesus, whose wife will she be? Aha, gotcha. You know, but Jesus responds by informing that their thinking is far too low, that they can only conceive of, 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 of the world in its current state, in its current conditions, but the conditions of the age to come, the conditions for the sons of the resurrection are going to be radically different, and, and so... Uh, one, of the, one of the key things about the coming age is that no one's going to die anymore. And one of the chief re- reasons people get married, according to the scriptures, is to have children. And so uh, if, if people aren't dying anymore, you don't need to replace the population anymore. And so, that, thus, uh, so thus there is no need for marriage because there is no need for producing children any longer for their death is no more. Uh, As Matthew Henry summarized it, he said, where there are no burials, there are no weddings. This not only tells us about the the coming age and what it's going to be like, but it does, in doing so, he reaffirms the value as well as the limits of marriage today in this age. As long as death is in the world, marriage is a reality, a necessary reality, and even a blessed reality. It is a necessary institution that cannot be defined in any way people see fit. But marriage, is, is, it, it cannot be redefined in any, any, any way people see fit, but neither is it ultimate. Neither is it the main thing. It has an expiration date as an institution, and we would do well to guard ourselves against making it into an idol. And you think, and I think of you know um, even uh, religions like uh, uh, the the Church of Latter Day Saints, the Mormons, who say marriage is eternal, and that uh, that marriage is forever, and that um, and aren't, wouldn't women be excited to find out that if their highest level they can attain is to go have uh, uh, have babies forever, all right, uh, spiritual babies, all right. But Jesus says, no, that's not how that works. That's just thinking in terms of the world as it is now. It's going to be so different. 
But he goes on to, he goes on to clarify. He, he answers her question, but he continues on from the value and limits of marriage, but also to the reality of the resurrection. Jesus turns to, to the book of Exodus, which at the very least would have been an authority for the Sadducees, uh, and, and he makes an argument, an argument that comes by implication. And, and God, he says, revealed himself to Moses, saying, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus makes the point that God is not the God of the non-existent, because in the Sadducees' mind, people die, and then they're no more. They're gone. That's it. There's no afterlife. And so, and he says, when God says, I am the God of, uh, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they've already died. But God is the God of the living, not the dead. So God would not say, I am the God of the non-existent persons. And so, um, and so, the, and, and the and the implication here is that they may be dead to us, uh, you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses may be dead to us, but they're very much alive to God because he stands in relation to them with resurrection life. But how is that? Well, one scholar wrote, and I thought it was fantastic, he, sa- he said, look, since God is an eternal being, that means his relationships, even with we, even with creatures, with created beings, are eternal relationships. And so, and so God is in an eternal covenantal relationship with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For him to be in that relationship with them is to give them eternal life. And so, and, I, and give a quote here now. He says, quote, Resurrection, then, is not a fantasy deemed up by the wishful thinking of less than rigorous theologians. Resurrection is a necessary outcome of the character and nature of God. Resurrection is the outcome of the character and nature of God in his saving relationship with beings who die. Because we are in relation to him, we will have resurrection. Now, that's a lot to take in. But, and, uh, but, uh, but to kind of put a cap on all of it, we need to reckon lastly with the grace of resurrection that is, in, that is found in what Jesus teaches here. Jesus highlights that those who experience resurrection life are the sons of the resurrection. They are those considered worthy to attain to the age to come and the resurrection of the dead. And I would ask you a question, how in the world do you do that? How are you or I to be, uh, to be considered worthy to attain to the age to come and the resurrection of the dead? I barely qualify for my Sam's Club membership, let alone the resurrection of the dead. Well, the words of the Apostle Paul are instructive at this very point. He says in Philippians verses 3, 8, 8 through 11, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. A share in his sufferings becoming like him in his death that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. We are not counted worthy to attain to the resurrection of the dead 
by a righteousness that comes by works, by an obedience of the law that comes simply by our own effort and strength. It comes by the righteousness that is by faith that is established in Christ's work on our behalf. We are considered worthy to attain to the resurrection of the dead by faith in Christ and having his worthiness applied to us by the mercy of God. There is no small amount of comfort here in Jesus' words. We who have lost loved ones in Christ, we know that they are blessed. We know that they are experiencing life more than we are to the fullest extent. And there is still more to come because even they await the resurrection and the the life that is to come in the kingdom. And we are comforted by the reality that though those we love may be dead to us physically, and that we cannot be with them presently, that they are alive eternally with God, who is the very principle of life and resurrection life. And so we have in this discourse of politics and religion, we find that in Jesus, we are, we are, we are pressed by him to give to God all that we are and all that we have. And we are comforted that the resurrection awaits us and that, and, and that the resurrection awaits us and that we will certainly uh, come into that resurrection life, that resurrection reality, because our God is not a God of the dead. He's not God of history. He is the God of the living. And those who are in him are alive forever. Even more, our Savior Jesus has died and he has rose again. And the, and the Apostle Paul says in that same letter from which we re- just read that he will make his people like himself in resurrection glory. So, now we are called to follow in the Apostle's way, to count everything as loss, to give God all that we are and all that we have because of the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that indeed in Christ we have a faithful Savior, a glorious Redeemer, and a great comfort in our sorrows, great comfort in our, in our needs, great comfort in our fears. And Lord, we pray that you would forgive us for where we have held back, for where we have tried to, uh, to give flattery to Christ while we avoid obeying you or to obey him. But we, we are reminded that we as Christians have been baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that as Christ's disciples, we are being taught not merely Christ's commands, but to obey his commands. And so, Lord, we pray that you would forgive us for what is lacking in our obedience. We pray that you would forgive us for outright disobedience to your commands. We pray that you would lead us in your everlasting way. Lord, we pray that you would comfort us 
with the reality and the truth of the resurrection life that comes to us by mercy and grace through faith in your son, Jesus. That we would be comforted in our loss and grief over our loved ones who have gone to be with you and have departed this world. That we would be strengthened as we even consider our own departure when it shall come. And Lord, in all of it, may you be glorified. May your people be helped. May we be made more holy, more joyful in your grace and love. That your your gospel would be magnified and spread throughout our community, throughout our neighborhoods and our relationships, and indeed the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.